John Newton's story was renowned as one of the most sensational, sinful, spiritual, romantic, influential, and historically important sagas of the 18th century. So says Jonathan Aiken on the back cover of his biography of John Newton. Yet today we hardly know anything about him. The only thing that most people know about John Newton, if you know him at all, is that he is the author of perhaps the most famous hymn in the English language, Amazing Grace. Its power and message come from Newton's life experience and walk with God. But Newton did not come to Christ as a young child. He grew up in England. His father encouraged him to join the Navy at a young age, for that was common in the 1700s. His mother had faith in Christ, but Newton completely rejected that. And so he learned the crudeness and depravity common on British slave ships. Sometimes they would be gone for one or two years, and in the formative years of his life, his character was shaped by life on the slave ship. He became a foul-mouthed, immoral brawler who regularly cursed God. But at the age of 23, something was about to happen in Newton's life that would change his life forever. He was on a ship called the Greyhound, which was not a slave trading ship, but this time a trading ship, and it was returning to England with its cargo after being away for over a year. And on the night of uh, March 10th, 1748, Newton writes about his experience. He says, I went to bed that night in my usual security and indifference, but was awakened from a sound sleep by the force of a violent sea that broke on us. Much of it came down below and filled the cabin where I lay with water. This alarm was followed by a cry from the deck that the ship was going down or sinking. Aiken, the biographer, then goes on and says, 15 months in equatorial African waters had rotted the Greyhound's timbers, worn out her sails, frayed her ropes. And as mountainous waves billowed over the Greyhound, a large section of the upper bow was smashed to smithereens. And the broken planks opened a huge hole in the side of the ship. Seawater poured in, and within moments, the Greyhound was flooded and foundering in great peril. Well, Newton went to the ladder to climb up onto the deck. But the captain immediately told him, no, go get a knife. We need a knife. And so Newton went down, and someone else came and took his place, went up the ladder, got onto the deck, and at just that moment, a massive wave came across the deck and swept the man overboard. On this occasion, Newton had no time to reflect on the narrowness of his own escape or the coincidence of his companion's death. For the next few hours, all hands were on deck at the pumps and trying to bail out water with buckets, but they were losing the battle. Yet the Greyhound was saved from sinking that day by her unusual cargo of beeswax and African camwood, and these floated in the waterlogged hold and helped keep the ship buoyant. Yet beyond the crewmen who had been swept overboard, all the sheep, cattle, poultry, and food was also gone. 
And Newton describes those moments as furiously pumping at the pumps, wondering if he was going to live beyond 15 minutes. Newton then had a suggestion to the captain to try to save the ship. And after they talked, Newton made the statement, if this will not do, the Lord have mercy on us. And Newton was shocked. He writes, this was the first desire for mercy I had for many years. And his amazement was understandable, for he had blasphemed, he had cursed God, he had rudely rejected God habitually for years. The crew endured two more days of frantic pumping and desperate struggles to survive when a lookout thought that they saw land. And everyone's hope swelled until it was discovered. It was a mirage or just a billowing wave. And when despair swept over the ship, the captain turned his fury on Newton. He blamed Newton for this storm, saying, all of your blasphemies and all your cursing of God have brought the wrath of God down onto us. And in the few moments of peace that Newton had in those days, he, he took up a Bible. And he turned to the Bible for comfort and, and focused on the parable of the prodigal son and saw God as, as his father. And so Newton gave his life over to Christ. The crew endured three more torturous weeks of trying to survive before finally seeing land, the coast of Ireland. And on April 8, 1748, nearly a month later, the battered and barely floating greyhound made port with Newton as a newborn Christian. Sometimes God brings people to the very edge of death before they see their need for him. Newton had to go through this shattering, life-threatening journey before he finally awoke to his need for Christ. And if we settle into complacency about God, God might take us there. We can convince ourselves, you know, I'll get back to God one day. Well, we drift further and further away. But if our lives suddenly experience great threat or great shaking or turmoil, it can shake us out of our complacency and remind us anew of our desperate need for God. And this happened to the Israelites during Ezekiel's time. Remember, Ezekiel lives among exiles, deported by the Babylonians from Jerusalem. Yet Jerusalem still stands and the temple still stands. And the people in Jerusalem are beginning to think the worst is over. And some of the exiles are thinking the same thing. And they're starting to talk. Maybe we can go back to Jerusalem. Maybe we can go back to our lives just as they were. Yet God's judgment upon them was not done. He would ordain the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple because they needed a national reset. They had collectively turned away from God and engaged in idol worship. Which is something we all need to guard against. John Newton had made an idol of himself and having his way for many, many years. 
And we can do the same thing as we drift far from God. And so in today's passage, we are going to see the Lord reveal to Ezekiel scene after scene of idol worship that is going on in Jerusalem. And then we're going to think about why the Lord responded so strongly to this idol worship. And finally, we're going to see how we need to depend on the Lord to protect ourselves from allowing idols to take hold in our lives. So I want to invite you to follow along today if you have a Bible with you and find Ezekiel 8 in the Old Testament. Ezekiel 8, and we'll be looking at verses 1 to 18. And if you don't have a Bible, there should be some if you're here with us today in front of you, and it's on page 592. So the 18 verses of Ezekiel 8, and this is Ezekiel recounting what happened again. In the sixth year, in the sixth month, on the fifth day of the month, as, us, as I sat in my house with the elders of Judah sitting before me, the hand of the Lord God fell upon me there. Then I looked, and behold, a form that had the appearance of a man. Below what appeared to be his waist was fire, and above his waist was something like the appearance of brightness, like gleaming metal, He put out the form of a hand and he took me by a lock of my head and the spirit lifted me up between earth and heaven and brought me in visions of God to Jerusalem to the entranceway of the gateway of the inner court that faces north where was the seat of the image of jealousy which provokes to jealousy. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was there, like the vision that I saw in the valley. Then he said to me, Son of man, lift up your eyes now toward the north. So I lifted up my eyes toward the north, and behold, north of the altar gate in the entrance was the image of jealousy. And he said to me, Son of man, do you see what they're doing? The great abominations that the house of Israel are committing here? To drive me far from my sanctuary? But you will see still greater abominations. And he brought me to the entrance of the court. And when I looked, behold, there was a hole in the wall. And then he said to me, son of man, dig in the wall. So I dug in the wall and behold, there was an entrance. And he said to me, go in and see the vile abominations that they are committing here. So I went in and saw, and there, engraved on the wall all around, was every form of creeping things and loathsome beasts and all the idols of the house of Israel. And before them stood 70 men of the elders of the house of Israel, with Jah-Azaniah, the son of Shaphan, standing among them. Each had his censer in his hand, and the smoke of the cloud of incense went up. Then he said to me, Son of man, have you seen what the elders of the house of Israel are doing in the dark, each in his room of pictures? For they say, The Lord does not see us. The Lord has forsaken the land. He said also to me, You will see still greater abominations than they commit, that they commit. Then he brought me to the entrance of the north gate of the house of the Lord, and behold, there sat women weeping for Tammuz. Then he said to me, Have you seen this, O son of man? You will see still greater abominations than these. 
And he brought me into the inner court of the house of the Lord. And behold, at the entrance of the temple of the Lord, between the porch and the altar, were about 25 men with their backs to the temple of the Lord and their faces toward the east, worshiping the sun toward the east. Then he said to me, have you seen this, O son of man? Is it too light a thing for the house of Judah to commit the abominations that they commit here, that they should fill the land with violence and provoke me still further to anger? Behold, they put the branch to their nose. Therefore, I will act in my wrath. My eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. And though they cry in my ears with a loud voice, I will not hear them. So that's a tough passage and a tough revelation. But it's 14 months after the initial vision Ezekiel received in chapter 1. And he's sitting in his house and the elders have come before him and they're sitting before him and probably seeking a word from the Lord. And what you would do is you would come to the prophet, you would say, is there any word from the Lord? And you would wait while the elder or the prophet would then seek the Lord in prayer. And maybe the Lord would grant the prophet a vision. And this is what happens. Ezekiel says, the Lord's hand was upon me again. And then he looks and sees someone in the form of a man. And this person looks very similar to the Lord in chapter 1. For below his waist it's like fire. Above his waist it's like bright gleaming metal. And then Ezekiel sees the form of a hand. And it takes him up just by a lock of his hair. And then in verse 3, the spirit lifts him up and brings him to Jerusalem and the temple courts. And there, of course, you would expect to find the glory of the Lord, for the Lord dwells in the temple on earth, when he is dwelling on earth among the Israelites. Now, did you notice that there were three different manifestations of God at the same time? There's a divine messenger in human form that had features of the Lord. There is the spirit that lifts Ezekiel up. And then there is the glory of God in Jerusalem when they arrive. Could this be an Old Testament appearance of the three persons of the Trinity? Yes. And there are clues to the triune nature of God all through the Old Testament. And here is one of them. And then in verse 5, the one who had the appearance of a man and the glory of God speaks. And he says, Son of man, look north. Do you see the great abominations that the house of Israel are committing here to drive me from my sanctuary? Now to understand that, we have to understand the word abomination. What's an abomination? Usually that's not a word that we use very often today. Did you use it this morning? What you're wearing today, that's an abomination. You can't wear that. No, we don't, we don't really use that word today. It refers to something very objectionable and disgusting in our eyes. So something where there is, there's no, like it's just, there's no reason to rejoice. There's, no, there's nothing good about that. It's, oh, that's so wrong. Texas school shooting this past week. That's an abomination. There, there's nothing there. It, evil and loathsome and sorrowful. 
Well, here, abomination refers to something objectionable or detestable in the eyes of God. And the word describes people, things, acts, relationships, or characteristics that are detestable to God because they're contrary to his character. And idol worship is an abomination to God. And God made sure that the Israelites knew this. Remember the Ten Commandments? What's commandment number one? You shall have no other gods before me. What's commandment number two? You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath or that is in water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. And when it says God, the Lord is a jealous God, it means he is jealous for his people. He is jealous for the good kind of jealousy, the protective jealousy, not the, not the hurt feeling jealousy. Oh, I'm jealous that they're worshiping other gods. Oh, man. No. It's a jealousy of protection. And he's Jealous for his people. So worshiping idols is an abomination to God. So the one with the appearance like a man is going to show Ezekiel what's happening in Jerusalem. And he shows him scene after scene of idolatry. And if you have a bulletin, you'll want to open now to the inner part where you have this picture here from the Bible Project, which portrays this. And there are four idolatries that are found here in Ezekiel 8. The first one is an idol of jealousy in the gateway of the inner court. So chapter 8 verses 5 and 6 and it's that idol that's in the middle of the drawing and you see just below the idol there is the altar with flames. That was where they burnt their offerings. So this is the the central place of the worship of God and they put an idol right there in this very prominent place. It's like the idol was an addition to Israel's worship. And then the second one is 70 leaders burning incense to carved images of creeping things in a temple room. And on the drawing, you can see the leaders inside the temple uh, worshiping and, uh, and, and lifting up incense to these images. And Ezekiel sees this room with engravings all over the wall with creep- of creeping things and loathsome beasts. And then he sees 70 men and he recognizes one of them. Remember, Ezekiel used to live in Jerusalem. So he recognizes, I see this guy, Ja-Azaniah, the son of Shaphan. And he's among the 70. Now the significance of that is the family Shaphan was known to be incredibly loyal to the, to the Lord. And now here is one of the sons from that family burning incense to a carved image on a wall, which is showing the widespread acceptance of idolatry. And they hold this incense hoping that the God represented by the image will respond. And the man even tells Ezekiel what they were thinking in verse 12. The Lord can't see us in the dark, so... The Lord has forsaken the land. The Lord can't see us. And, and that could be a simple justification for sin. Well, the Lord can't see us if we go in here. But it is more likely an interpretation of what's happened. 
Babylon has defeated us. It looks like the Lord is not seeing us or watching us. The Lord's forsaken us. Therefore, we're going to burn incense to these images. And the messenger then shows Ezekiel a third example of idol worship. And you see that on the left side of the drawing. Women weeping for a god called Tammuz. And this, we think, was the Babylonian fertility god. And they believed that this god died every fall when the plants were dying. And there, then you had to weep over the death of the god so in the hopes that the god would be resurrected and that there would be a new crop coming. So the, the women are weeping over the god. And then the last one is in verse 16 where 25 men, it's not portrayed on the drawing, 25 men with their backs to the temple worship the sun. And they stand at the very entrance of the temple with their backs to it, worshiping the sun. Um, you can't get much more defiant than that. And these all indicate this widespread embrace of idolatry among the Israelites. So this is not happening in some country town way up north in the country where no one knows and some high place in the dark. This is happening at the very central place of Israelite worship, God's dwelling place. Idolatry has spread throughout the land. And God is 100% justified in bringing judgment on this people. But, but why is God so concerned about idolatry anyway? Why? And two reasons. Number one, as we have already sung today, he is holy. Meaning he is separate from sin. And when it comes to sin, he can't just let it go on. For to be king and lord over a, a just and righteous kingdom, sin has to be confronted and dealt with and paid for. And remember, God doesn't just zap people with sin. Oh, there's someone worshiping an idol. Destroy that guy. No. God has sent the Israelites hundreds of years of, of warnings from the prophets to call them back to himself. And we also know that he sent his own son, Jesus, to deal with our sin. So, so God confronts sin, but he also makes a way for it to be paid through his own son. But there's another reason why God confronts this idolatry that's found right in this text. Verse 17, then he said to them, have you seen this, O son of man? Is it too light a thing for the house of Judah to commit the abominations they commit that they should fill the land with violence and provoke me still further to anger? So, so, it seems he's saying there, idolatry inevitably leads to violence. How, how does that happen? Well, we need to start by recognizing there was supposed to be a major difference between idol worship and Israelite worship. Idol worship was basically transactional. I go to the idol... I give the idol food or a burnt offering or I bow down before the idol and the idol is appeased or happy and then the idol, the God, is supposed to do something for me. Maybe protect me, maybe to do something um, evil to my enemy, maybe bring rain so my crops will work and as soon as the transaction is gone, I just go out and I live my life however I want. Whereas Israelite was supposed to be intimately connected to the way that you lived your life. So, yes, you did the rites, you did the sacrifices, you did all of that, but it had to extend into the way you lived. 
with, with God's heart towards others. So anyone who treated, as an Israelite, treated God as a transaction was worshiping in an idol-like way. And this appears to be what, what has happened here. And, and when you start treating God like that, you can easily slide into idol worship. And God cannot stand it when people come to worship him in a transactional way. Meaning, you know, I, I come to church on Sunday, therefore that's a gift to you, God. You're, you should feel really favored. And now you owe me a good week, and I'm going to forget you the rest of the week. We, we can do the same thing. But listen to an example of how God, through the prophets, expresses his despising of that kind of worship. Isaiah 1, verses 15 and 16. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen because your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do good. Seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, seek the widow's cause. So do you see, he he doesn't want worship when, if his people worship and then they just go out and oppress others. He can't stand that. Transactional idol worship is detached from everyday life. Israelite Christian worship is supposed to be connected to our everyday life life so why does a society that worships idols get violent because with no healthy fear of God with no confession of sin people will follow their natural sinful desires and natural sinful desires want satisfaction they want they want stuff well where can you find stuff most easily from the weakest, the poor, the most vulnerable, the powerless, the not yet born. They're way easier to rob, evict, steal from, threaten, put into slavery, murder. And when there is violence in the society, it is often committed against those who can't really defend themselves. And God points out in verse 17 that on top of their idolatry, the Israelites have filled the land with violence. So he is going to act. Now, if you were an ancient Israelite and you saw that phrase, filled the land with violence, it would immediately take you back to another moment. If you've read the Old Testament, you might also recognize that phrase. The earth was filled with violence. And then what happened? Genesis 6, verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and the earth was filled with violence. And so God raises up Noah to save a remnant because he is going to wipe out that violent society through flood. And God responds according to character. In chapter 8, verse 18. Therefore I will act in wrath. My eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. And though they cry in my ears with a loud voice, I will not hear them. God will allow the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple because the Israelites had settled into this lifestyle of complacency and idolatry. They needed a total reset. Yet even in judgment, there would be mercy and restoration coming, as we will see in the days ahead. But the same thing happened in John Newton's life. 
He had made an idol out of his preferences and God intervened through that storm to conduct a major reset in his life. And you and I need to take seriously this warning about idolatry in our lives. So how can we do that? How can we participate with God in protecting ourselves against idolatry? Well, step one is one that we need to constantly do in our Christian lives. Admit spiritual helplessness. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. When we admit our spiritual poverty, when we admit our spiritual helplessness, we are in a position to receive from God what we need to thrive in our faith and life. So if we say to God, you know what, idolatry, not an issue for me. I'm just going to deal with that part myself. We're vulnerable. We need the Lord and his spirit. And, and maybe the Lord re- re- is revealing to you, you have never actually said this to God. I never have admitted my spiritual helplessness. I have never admitted that I am poor in spirit. I have never put my trust on the Lord. I mean, these Israelites, a lot of them, as they worshipped idols, thought they were okay with God. Thought they were good. And, and we can do the same thing. We, we go to church, maybe for years, but we never actually admit our spiritual poverty to God. So if you've never done that, Admit it. And stop putting the trust of yourself, of your life solely on yourself, and put the trust of your life on Christ. And when we do that, we say, you know what? I am spiritually poor, and I need you, Lord. God pours his gospel into our lives and adopts us as his kids. And we begin that journey of walking with him recognizing our spiritual poverty, enjoying his spiritual riches. So first, admit your spiritual helplessness for the first time ever or anew, afresh. Number two, ask God for discernment to recognize that we live in an idol-filled society. We look at the ancients. Sometimes we think, how stupid are they? Worshiping statues and carved images. Who does that? They're so stupid. And yet, we have idols all through our culture. The biggest today is ourselves. Isn't self the big idol today? The culture worships self, it caters to self, it makes it all about ourselves. Or we make idols out of money, or power, or our jobs, or success or image. So we ask the Lord to recognize, help us recognize, we live in an idol-filled culture, help us to see them. And then third, it gets more personal, seek the Lord to reveal any idolatry creeping into your life. And I might call this an idolatry self-test. So here are some possible indicators of idolatry or questions. Um, First one, you you view worship of God as completely disconnected from the rest of your life. I come on Sunday, I worship God, and I'm done. I forget about God for the rest of the week. I come back and I do it again. Hmm. Maybe something else is more important than God. That's idolatry. Or you do things in secret that you don't want God and anyone else to know about. There might be some idolatry going on there. I mean, talk about a prophetic verse, Ezekiel 8, 12, what it says about what the elders are doing. 
Uh, Son of man, have you seen what the elders of the house of Israel are doing in the dark, each in his room of pictures? Doesn't that sound like what happens in darkness when we're alone for people today? So if we're doing something in secret that we don't want God or anyone else to know about, we might be struggling with idolatry. Another indicator might be we get defensive if someone raises a question about something in our lives. Maybe you should do, do less of that. What, what do you mean? What do you, no way. No, I, I've earned that. Or maybe you should start reading your book. No, I don't have time for reading my book. No. And, and, and if we get really defensive like that, maybe there's an idolatry happening. Or maybe we experience growing comfort with seeing Christ as just one of many valid religious alternatives. Well, then the idol is maybe pluralism, maybe comfort. We don't want to deal with discomfort of saying Jesus is the only way. And it seems like that's what the Israelites did. They wanted to worship the Lord and all the other idols to be like everyone else. So maybe those are some indicators of idolatry in our own lives. And And then fourth, we ask God to grow holiness in us. And, and here's something you might take on for this summer. Maybe you could ask God to grow you in holiness in one area this summer. Just, just one area. And, and one way we can, we can do that is we can take a passage, a Bible passage like Colossians 3, 5 to 14, or 5 to 17, and just prayerfully read it and say, Lord, is there, is there something in this passage, something here that you want me to grow in, to leave behind, or, or to see. And, and so that's how I'm going to close today. I want to invite you to ask the Lord, can you point out one thing in my life that you want me to pay attention to this summer and you want to work on in my life? So I'm going to read Colossians 3, 5 to 14 prayerfully and, and you listen and maybe the Spirit will point out one thing that he wants to change or you to grow in and then we'll pray so here's Colossians 3 5 to 14 put to death therefore what is earthly in you sexual immorality impurity passion evil desire and covetousness which is idolatry on account of these the wrath of God is coming in these you Two once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So those are things to maybe put off maybe there's something in there God has spoken to you about that you need to put off that you need his help to overcome and then here's things to put on verse 12 of Colossians 3 put on then as God's chosen ones holy and beloved compassionate hearts are you lacking in compassion kindness humility meekness and patience bearing with one another and if one has a complaint against another forgiving each other 
as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And Lord, as we review such a list like that, none of us gets 100%. We all need to continue to cooperate with your spirit as you grow us in holiness. And in our idol-filled society, that's tough. Especially when we hear things like everyone else is doing it. Or it doesn't matter. Well, that's not important. Or why are you making such a big deal? Help us to humbly see and hear what you want us to see and hear from this passage and to grow in. Because you, oh God, have our best in mind. You know what's good for us. You know that leaving behind those things of our earthly nature is good for us. You want to release us from all of that. So enable us to let our grip go of them and to embrace all who you are and all you have for us. We pray.